the accidental engineer welcome all max of the accidental engineer here today i'm more than happy to be joined by tim Rowe over in the uk uh welcome tim hi uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show for people who aren't familiar tim is a great guest to have on the show he is an aviation safety systems consultant i might have said that in the wrong order <laughs> but I came across Tim via Quora.com where he writes quite a few interesting answers to questions people have about system safety uh, as an engineer. Uh, do you mind sharing with your audience a little bit about what it is that you do, Tim? Uh, well, nowadays I'm mainly uh, prepare or help clients prepare safety cases for airports, air traffic control centers, that sort of thing. Um, so, um, sit with the client, um, help them work out what they need to do to make sure that the system is sufficiently safe and uh, how they can actually demonstrate it, satisfy themselves, satisfy the stakeholders, uh, satisfy the regulators. So before getting into verifying people's uh, testing protocols or safety protocols, I guess you went to school and, and learned a fair amount about computer science and programming? Well, um, my background actually is as an electronic engineer. I went to university and uh, did electronics. Um, I worked for a while as an electronic technician before I went to university, uh, just fixing uh, equipment. Um, got my degree in uh, electrical and electronic engineering and moved into safety. I mean, that was almost before, certainly as the technician, it was before I'd even encountered computers uh, I go back a long way, but the um, at university, yes, they taught us Fortran, so that was my first properly taught computer programming language. But I've never actually been a programmer. I did a, a master's degree in commerce and industry later on. Uh, that was quite well on my career. Um, the focus of that was not so much on programming; it was more on uh, it was more on system assurance, uh, testing, quality management. Uh, those aspects also covered formal methods. That was Pascal-based. And besides that, I've been a hobbyist programmer pretty much since I discovered computers, which uh, it's never been a, a professional thing for me, but it informs my uh, professional activities because it means I can actually talk to programmers and know what they're talking about. I couldn't do their job, but I can at least understand what they're about. Fair enough, fair enough. I, one of the things that you mentioned about what it is that you do, and you're an individual consultant uh, running your own consulting firm, is the stakeholders. And I'm curious about the, the stakeholders because it seems like there's an awful lot when you're dealing with, uh, with aviation safety and airplane safety, especially, uh, I mean, always, but especially these days with recent news events. Uh, what... Who, who all are the stakeholders that are involved in verifying that that airplanes are fit to fly or that the systems um, coordinating airplanes are fit to fly? Well, in terms of who I deal with, um, the, the meetings would get quite busy if I had every member of the flying public uh, in the meeting. <laughs> um, so really, it's down to uh, governments to represent their interests and the regulators. Um, but 
uh, if I'm dealing with an airport, then uh, other stakeholders might well involve things like flying clubs operating out of the airport. That's sort of one particular example I've been involved in sort of fairly recently. And uh, various businesses actually using airport facilities that sort of could interact. There was that particular one I'm thinking of. There was also a search and rescue operation uh, that used the airport. So other than that, uh, the, the stakeholders would be the airlines, I suppose. Uh, and as I say, any private uh, businesses using the airport. Makes sense. Makes sense. I what I'm remembering the the question I saw you answer very eloquently on Cora that made me really intrigued to hear more about this topic of, of airplane safety. I think somebody asked a question about uh, how to how to build reliable software. I guess that runs on planes. I think the question you saw was the one asking why is Python not recommended for mission-critical systems? I think that's right, yeah. Of course, there's different types of mission-critical, and my involvement is with safety of life systems, and the big issue with that is how do you actually show you've got it right? And with Python, that's not so easy. Uh, I I love Python, um, as I mentioned in my answer, uh, when I did my uh, computing master's uh, degree, uh, my final uh, dissertation was a- actually using Python. It was actually uh, doing statistical analysis uh, on aircraft near misses uh, and looking at uh, techniques for uh, spotting trends in them. Uh, I did all the software then using Python. Uh, I love it as a language, but it doesn't have some of the characteristics that would make it uh, good for um, demonstrating safety. What are what are those characteristics? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the characteristics is basically a strong language specification. Python is pretty well uh, specified, but for instance, the preferred language when you get up to the higher you know the really um very much mission critical software um you're looking at things like ada which does actually have um a pretty much formalized specification and in fact safe subsets are formally specified another thing is actually long industry experience which python is gaining python has been about for possibly long enough now that it's uh it could possibly claim that, but uh, compared to things like ADA, um, I've seen systems using Pascal, and at the lower criticality levels, things like um, C++, they've got the longer background, and people understand better where the sort of dodgy areas are, where the things that are likely to cause issues are going to be. Now, IEC 61508. What is this document? IEC 61508. Okay, that's 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 where it all stems from. International Electric Electrotechnical Commission is it 61508. That's uh, an international standard that uh, for uh, electrical, electronic, and programmable electronic systems for the safety assurance of them, and it it specifies a whole pile of things that people should do to assure the safety of uh, software systems uh, with the uh, intention that it's actually 
uh, customized for each specific industry. So in my industry, aviation, um, the airborne stuff, uh, there's in Europe, it's ED-12, um, Eurokai ED-12. And I think in the States, it's um, DO-178, uh, I think. As I say, it's ED-12 in Europe. And then for the airborne, um, there is... Um, it's, uh, I think it's 278 in the States. I think they, you, you managed to do a nice tidy, uh, <laughs> just with the first digit. <laughs> uh, we weren't we very tidy in Europe. Uh, but they are, um, as I say, that's between Europe and the USA, and they're sort of widely used elsewhere. Uh, I've used them uh, in Hong Kong, for instance, um, and they're, they're quite happy with that. Um, I think, because, particularly because of the USA influence, manufacturers are very familiar with working to them. It specifies a whole pile of steps you have to go through for system assurance in terms of specification, in terms of testing, in terms of development processes. It, sound, it sounds like in terms of programming language too, or programming or software runtime behavior. I, when you said that Python might have reached the uh, maturity uh, demanded of uh, a language runtime or a compiler, I was thinking about how there's this controversy of Python 2 versus Python 3. <laughs> yes. I, in some ways, when languages do something like, you know, you know, declare a new version number, a new major version number, they're resetting the clock on themselves in some ways, I, guess, I suppose. There's, there's enough of a difference between Python 2 and Python 3 that, yes, uh, I think they have. Um, <laughs> one, one of the other things that sort of Python lacks that we would want to look for is type safety because uh, it is dynamically typed. And certainly there's a feeling in the safety community that actually having um, strongly typed languages it, it, it helps detect a lot of the errors at compile time. Generally, we, we prefer to find errors at compile time to finding them at testing time, and we prefer to find them at testing time to finding them when it's actually in operation. So, Certainly. <laughs> so, and, and, and anything that picks up the, the compile time errors, and that I do see as a, um, one of the things that would push Python a bit out of the way in terms of safety-critical systems. There was, it's exactly what people like for doing quick bits of uh, code glue to join systems together, getting um, piece of software to do a little sort of non-critical task. It's exactly what people like it for. It's just a different set of compromises. That uh, is there. Yeah. Is there is there an ADA too? <laughs> <laughs> or or I guess that that might be a decision, a design decision they've avoided. Is you know. To but remain that there are in time. there are different versions of Ada because um, they added object orientation to it. it. It originally wasn't object oriented, and they upgraded it. I can't remember. It's named after the year, and I can't remember what the years are. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, in, indeed, Ada um, has advanced. Um, so yeah. Well, I, I, one of the topics that we would be remiss not to talk about is uh, of recent um, 
aviation safety news, mm-hmm. uh, like the Boeing uh, accidents of the last year, yes. uh, the MAX uh, airplanes. Is this something that your type of safety uh, consulting covers is new airplane models? Well, as I say, I tend to deal with the airports and air traffic control centers and the equipment, and I used to deal with uh, on route equipment, navigation equipment and the like. So I'm uh, I'm more on the ground or nowadays with uh, GPS with <laughs> up in space uh, and not the stuff that's in between, actually sort of flying around in the air. Uh, but I do certainly follow the accident reports and see whether there are any lessons to be learnt for the equipment I deal with uh, from the reports on uh, other people's equipment, not, not just uh, aviation. Um, I look at uh, all across the industries, I look at nuclear, I look at railways. Um, part of my work is just digging out safety reports and familiarising myself with the sort of issues that uh, have caused problems. One one thing that I, I've been very entertained recently by is this, uh, there's a YouTube channel uh, where the U.S. Chemistry, Chemistry Safety Board publishes videos. And like, like you're mentioning, these aren't about, these are not aviation related, yes. <laughs> but um, these, these YouTube videos posted to the channel are uh, reenactments of, uh, reenactments of disastrous chemical safety problems happening either at, uh, generally at industrial plants. And the thing that I find so entertaining about these videos is they have so many crossovers to my field, which yes. is software engineering. Yes. <laughs> and and everyday, everyday safety issues. But I'd imagine, based on what I've seen in these videos, that a lot of the problems that exist with on-the-ground uh, administration and safety for aviation have to do with processes and not necessarily software. Uh, like human processes, like what should a human do when they see a software telling them X? Um, is that the case? Is, yes. is, it, is, there, is there, how much of what you test is software versus verifying human processes? Well, I, I deal with the engineered systems. I deal with the equipment, if you like, which, which contains software. Uh, but we have other people. I, when I'm working on a contract, I will normally want to be working with human factor specialists as well to look at that side of things. Um, Some years ago, we did a a research study of the organisation I was working for, looking at aircraft near misses and what the causes of them were. And I think we looked at 200 near misses and 199 of them were entirely down to human factors, and one of them had an one of them had an equipment component. Uh, so, <laughs> so there, there's a there's a there's a phrase. I don't know if this this uh, phrase is well known outside of software engineering, but the phrase I'm familiar with is called PEBCAC, or <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, problem exists between. Uh, computer and keyboard, <laughs> or I, I don't keyboard, know if I got no, that keyboard and chair. <laughs> keyboard and chair. There That's we go. It. Yes, <laughs> that makes a little bit more sense. <laughs> and it's, but no, 
is, it's one of the things I'm actually quite glad to have seen in the safety industry because when I first started getting involved in it, which would be in the 1980s, I suppose, uh, the focus was very much just on the equipment. Um, and in the intervening years, I, I was always concerned by that because I always felt that uh, equipment that gave the air traffic controller a better situational awareness was going to actually improve safety, but because it would have its own risks, there might be a, a pushback against it because of its own risks of failures and not counting its benefits. And two changes I've seen over the years. One is a recognition of the importance of the person in the loop. And the other is uh, better recognition of, of taking into account success conditions as well as failure conditions, um, actually claiming credit for the safety the equipment gives you, um, as well as uh, taking the disbenefit, you know, taking it on the chin for uh, any problems that it might cause. Uh, you're the control in their training, use a nice example of uh, an airbag in a car that uh, it's got um, a possible failure condition, it might go off when you're not in an accident and actually cause an accident. Um, but the the number of cases where it saves your life in an accident massively outweighs the, the, the cases where it, it actually causes an accident. And and so you you look at the safety gain from having it, you look at the safety loss from having it, and demonstrate that you've got a, a nice, healthy uh, net gain. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, when, it, when it comes to the types of verifications that you do of, of systems being safe and measuring the human element of it, uh, one, of the, one of the hot topics right now in software is around user experience, user interfaces, and accessibility requirements. And there's a, there's a famous photo or animation of the interface that the, uh, I guess, operations person in Hawaii was viewing when they accidentally pressed a false alarm button that uh, turned on the, the nuclear weapon alarm system in Hawaii. And, and this interface is horrible. Uh, <laughs> yes. It's an understandable mistake that the there was operator error due to the design of the user interface. So I'm wondering in, in your reviews as, as reviewing uh, British uh, air traffic control type of softwares and systems, whether user interfaces and user experience how they're discussed and how they fit into safety discussions. Well, as I say, um, when we're doing safety cases, we, we try and involve um, human factor specialists in it who will be looking at that and looking at the types of mistake that people can make. Uh, one important thing is uh, making sure people can undo a mistake easily if they make it. Uh, that is a, a very big factor. Um, one of the advantages of having a human being in a loop is that uh, humans are quite good at spotting when they've made a mistake and actually doing something about it, whereas uh, software systems tend not to realise they've made a mistake. They just carry <laughs> on with what they're doing. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a big part of why we're so keen on having the human in the loop. 
Um, yeah, but I, th I think specifically to that the Hawaii situation, yeah, there was no uh, undo button. Uh, there was no reset <laughs> button. Yeah. And what, what confounded the problem was the, the ended up being that the official way that the Hawaii government corrected their communications was that the governor had to sign into his personal Twitter account. <laughs> and yes. that was how there was no there was no fallback system. <laughs> so what what are the ways in which humans or what are, what are the what are the things that uh, are looked for when it comes to undoing perhaps uh, bad state in software? Um, I think well, in part we're trying to avoid sort of modal interfaces. So. Uh, okay, you, you you might pop up a window or, or something like that, but by and large, um, the, uh, the the air traffic controller has has got uh, his equipment in the state that, that he wants to use it in, and doesn't get locked into um, some other state and not be able to get out of it. Uh, but largely, it's a, it's a question of fairly straightforward interfaces. If the controller wants to change the radio channel, the controller presses a button to change the radio channel. Um, and if they press the wrong button, they just press the, the right button, which is next to it. So it, it, it really is down to simple interfaces in that regard. And other things, it's... I would say, I would say another part of it is actually making sure that the, that the, the time-critical stuff tends not to be that sort of interfacing with the system. The The controller will set up their controller working position for the pit of airspace they're going to be controlling and then pretty much leave it set up. And it's only at the it's only configuration um, if they're opening or closing a sector, if they're merging sectors. So when uh, air traffic is quiet, they might combine two sectors into one. It's only at those stages that um, there's um, what you might call modal, what you might call fundamental changes that uh, are likely to be undone. So really, the, the sort of thing that's undone in terms of um, air traffic control, it's, it's not the engineered system. It is the human factors. Yes, if the controller realizes they've, they've, they've given um, an instruction that isn't appropriate, uh, they just... Um, call the aircraft again and say undo that last one you know do this instead so it it, mm -hmm. it is the the undo is entirely down to uh, human processes it's it's not it, not so much in the engineered systems uh, because, because we have so much dependency on the human in the loop i know i know this might not be your area of expertise but i'm curious to hear your take on this is that uh, you mentioned buttons, and I was curious about with every new release of Apple products or you know what have you products, there's a lot of controversy about whether analog buttons are still present on devices or you have a touchscreen where it's up to you to you know there's no there's no uh, tactile sensory of uh, buttons on a screen these days with iPads and tablets and whatnot so. Is is there much input in the safety community around uh, whether user interfaces have uh, digital screens or uh, analog buttons that have a tactile element to being able to feel where they are? I mean, cars these days, you don't drive on a 
tablet, <laughs> you're still driving <laughs> with the steering wheel. So I'm I'm curious from a from a safety perspective whether there's any kind of uh, shift or or cultural opinions about it. Most of the controller working positions I've seen, uh, they are for communications. It's good old fashioned push to talk. It is actually um, a button that they physically press. For selection of channels, it's physical buttons. But um, for things like uh, coordination between sectors, a lot of that is done on the screen uh, using a, usually a track wheel rather than a mouse, but sometimes it's a mouse. And they will click on the aircraft and uh, pops up a menu and they will select from the menu, actually hand it over to the next controller. Uh, and it will then change colour on their display and um, alert the next controller uh, that they, they've now got control of the aircraft. So uh, some of it is done, but I, I don't think I've used touchscreen. I've, I've seen touchscreens. Uh, I, I suspect the thing there is that uh, their arm would get start to ache quite quickly, I think, if they had to sort of keep it up at um, eye level on the screen all the time. Yeah, no, I, I think most people's use of touch touchscreen devices are pretty limited to mm. consuming video content. To be honest, <laughs> um, I mean, looking yeah. at people's experiences as passengers on airplanes, there are there are touch devices, and they tend to be pretty low quality for you know yeah. selecting what selecting what film you'd like to watch on your airplane ride. <laughs> yeah, but no. I, I'd guess that the usage pattern of uh, air traffic controller, you know, doing the types of operations you describe, yeah, that would be physically tiring to have to lift your arms up to touch yes. the screen. Yeah. So, <laughs> and um, yes, we uh, just want one less thing for the control to worry about. Real, reality one, Star Trek zero, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Although in Star Trek, they, they might have at that point have, have all kinds of self-driving. Oh, uh, I, thought, I, I thought that. I thought in Star I, Trek they just spoke to them. That's that's it's, true, but they have it, these. It, 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 it's CSI, yeah. isn't it, where they wave their arms about a lot? <laughs> they have a zoom and enhance. Uh, yeah. I, in Star Trek, they have their command center, and uh, it looks it looks an awfully lot like uh, what I've seen depicted in fictional shows recently seeing the HBO show Chernobyl about the 80s Chernobyl nuclear yeah. plant disaster. I, I seeing the Chernobyl operating center uh, where they were coordinating the safety test uh, reminded me <laughs> of the Star Trek <laughs> Enterprise uh, uh, main main cabin or, or command center. <laughs> I, yes. I don't know. Does does, does Star Trek and uh, air traffic control uh, do they do they look similar? I mean, they're both, I guess, circular rooms in some ways. Um, I, I suppose in a way that you you've got um, lines or uh, yes, typically lines of uh, controller working positions. So people sitting. <laughs> uh, yes, I suppose there's a bit of a similarity. <laughs> soon, soon coming to uh, uh, cars. <laughs> soon coming to cars, you'll have a, a, a circular workstation where, where you, I don't know, you're seeing 
your speedometer, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, talk, thinking of Chernobyl reminded me, of course, of the Three Mile Island, and we were talking about human factors there. One of the issues with Three Mile Island was that there was a key fob hanging over the warning light. <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't th they didn't see the warning light <laughs> because there was a key fob hanging over it. Yeah. Um, one, of, one of the other issues is that on that and another human factors one is I understand all the alarms sounded basically equally scary. Uh, <laughs> and it made it made no difference whether it was some minor thing that didn't really matter all that much or whether it was a complete meltdown. Uh, mm -hmm. They all sounded very similar. And it's one of the things we did start looking at in terms of system specification, that there was some prioritization of alarm indications, audio and visual, uh, mm. so that more significant alarms would actually get a priority and get more attention. I, th I think one of the really sensitive topics about safety engineering is that in any, I mean, safety engineering has to happen and what makes Chernobyl interesting for Westerners is that it's kind of a memory of a not, no longer existent communist system where capitalism and profits were not what funded uh, safety engineering. And I, th I think an interesting topic we could maybe talk about is uh, that, that at the end of the day, everybody wants to feel safe taking transit or using any given uh, modern piece of technology. Uh, but uh, it's, it's risky. Every, everything is risky. <laughs> and uh, I, I think what maybe our audience can appreciate about what it is that you do, and, and maybe next time they're, they're watching Chernobyl, is that a great deal of the series of events that lead to disasters are preventable for sure, but uh, it's it's often the human factors. And uh, from watching even the Chemical Safety Board YouTube videos I was mentioning earlier, these are all U.S.-based under a capitalist system uh, or pseudo-capitalist in many cases because utilities in the U.S. are by and large heavily regulated by the government. Um, these these issues are often you know a plant manager deciding to forego a maintenance window because uh, they don't want to shut down the plant because that would have impact on their business revenues and the refinery's outputs. So uh, safety windows get overlooked and, and safety maintenances go undone as uh, when they're supposed to be done. And so risk accumulates more than it should. So I'm wondering, like, uh, aviation is one specific area, but uh, when it comes to stuff like maintenance windows, that seemed to be a very common uh, problem <laughs> for me watching all of these U.S. chemical safety boards <laughs> is that uh, in the capitalist economy, in industrial plants have every incentive to try and do everything they can to prevent shutting down the plant. Um, what, what are some of the, I guess, safety process or, or safety testing that you do in your line of work that try to override the capitalist urge to keep the plant open, <laughs> so to speak. The, um, partly it's actually pinned down by procedures. Uh, the equivalent for the air traffic control center would be having to clear the skies. 
um, which um, absolutely uh, I've not known it ever actually happen, but I've made sure it's been written into procedures. I've checked the procedures to actually um, make sure they say if this combination of failures happens, uh, then you have to um, clear the skies. You have to um, stop accepting any more aircraft, so they all have to go somewhere else, and you have to land the aircraft or get clear them out of the airspace uh, as quickly as practicable. I've never known it actually happen, but uh, the procedure's there. Um, I think one advantage is that it would actually take quite a spectacular failure for that to be necessary. Um, issues tend to affect only one or two aircraft at a time. Um, I, I can... If I can name a, a couple that I, I can recollect and I, and I've le I've lived a relatively short life so far, but the, the two, that I'm, the two that I'm recalling are one is uh, quite recently, actually the London um, Heathrow, uh, somebody was flying a drone. Oh, uh, Gatwick, Gat uh, no, you're right. I think you're right. It was, I can't remember if it was Heathrow or Gatwick. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So when they did have to close the airport, um, Yes, that's true. And the, the other one, of course, would be 9-11 yeah, when they closed the U.S. airspace. That's the other um, one I was thinking about. Now, now that, that, one, um, that one wouldn't have been an air traffic control decision. That would have been um, <laughs> above their yeah, pay grade. Besides human-made uh, instances, no. there, uh, we should also include the fact that there's all kinds of uh, natural weather, weather disaster, or um, extreme weather yes. events that are also uh, factors. Yeah. Well, that 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 tends to be uh, built into procedures. For instance, um, in the UK, fog is certainly an issue, um, and the airport, the instrument landing systems will be rated down to a particular visibility, and the aircraft and aircrew will also have to have a corresponding rating, uh, and if they don't match that, then they, they can't land there. Similar with crosswinds, uh, that's all written into procedures, what crosswinds they can allow, uh, when they can land and when they can't. Um, ultimately, it's always the uh, captain's decision. Uh, air traffic control uh, can't override the captain, but uh, if the captain goes against what air traffic control says, then they're going to have some explaining to do. Uh, but um, yes, as I say, it, it's written into procedures that whether it is written into procedures, the drone uh, incident. Yes, if if the if the controller gets a report of any obstacles in the runway area or in the airspace around, uh, then the controller will stop things. It, it won't let aircraft in, into an area that could be hazardous. And it just happened at that, that it, rather than, you know, if you get an incident of a wild animal or something sort of sitting down on the runway, it clears quite quickly. <laughs> uh, they send somebody out in the car to clear it. Uh, but in the yeah. case of the drone incident, it persisted long enough. So that, that in a sense, it's almost... It's almost stopping the next aircraft, but it, it, it just kept stopping the next aircraft for as long as the incident came in. So it was... This, this... The sense, the sense, I was going to say, the sense in which it closed the airport, the, the point at which they 
start telling passengers not to bother turning up. Uh, that, uh, that level, it's a management decision, but the actual decision that I can't let an aircraft take off because there could be something in its way, that's an immediate decision to the controller. And I think any controller would make that decision correctly. I can't imagine a controller clearing an aircraft for takeoff or for landing uh, when they know there could be something uh, hazardous to the aircraft. I, I can recollect this this event didn't clear the air, so to speak, of all flights in and out of the airport, but there was a, also the event where a flock of geese, I guess, brought down a, a U.S. flight in New York that they may, ended up making a movie about. <laughs> maybe, oh. maybe I have the details wrong. It might not have been animals. It might have been just a, a unique weather event or a novel weather event, but all, all that to say... I, actually, yeah, I, 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 there was there was another one which there, there was one where the flight data processing system in the UK completely failed. It was actually uh, due to a it was that one that was down to a software bug. Uh, it was uh, it received, I suppose, what you call a Christmas tree packet. There was a, a corrupted packet that uh, unfortunately crashed the system and also. In crashing the system, it wiped out its database uh, and took quite a while to restore. Now, the result of that basically is that air traffic controllers had no information on the flights that were around. So they could still actually manage the flights safely. They just, um, it, it was a huge capacity problem because rather than all the normal stuff of knowing where any particular flight was due to go to, um, they were having to basically ask each uh, plane in turn, where, where was it going? Where did it want to? Get? <laughs> uh, uh, so it, it, it effectively closed the airspace um, because, as I say, although they could they, they, they could still manage it safely, they the, the capacity was absolutely tiny compared to what it would normally be. So uh, I'm not sure what the practicalities were, but they they, they would certainly still allow emergency flights and possibly medical and things like that but as i say i don't know the details of exactly what could fly and what couldn't but i know that over the quite a busy weekend um in the uk a software bug did close the airspace my name was on the safety case for the system uh, I'd, I'd, I'd actually endorse the safety case because the safety case said effectively this system could easily fail uh, but when it does so it will do so safely I, we, we've we've dwelled on some of the less savory outcomes of aviation events. Uh, I know I've had a guest on previous on the show who's discussed formal methods of verifying that software behaves the way we all yes. hope and expect it to. I know you mentioned early in our conversation here today that you did some studies of it in your graduate work and uh, that yes. it also doesn't have a tremendous uptake in uh, regulating aviation safety. So for audience that aren't familiar, one, you, you guys can go check out the, the episode with Hillel Wayne about uh, formal methods. But on the other hand, we can hear Tim's take on what, what is formal methods? Why, why hasn't it seen uptake, I guess? Well, the full formal methods, it's basically specifying the software in strict mathematical terms and then 
proving mathematically that the software does comply with that specification. Why not so much uptake? Um, I think in part it was because it was overhyped when it was first developed and that uh, when it didn't deliver on all its promises that led to a bit of pushback uh, against it. But the other thing that strikes me is that when you've actually got a formal mathematical specification of what the software is going to do, there are not many clients who are going to be able to read it and, and say, yes, that's what I want. <laughs> um, so that in, in, in some situations, control systems, perhaps, for instance, uh, where you've actually got a mathematical model in the first place, it's likely to be more applicable. But when it actually comes down to the human computer into the action and the human being saying, uh, this, this is how I want to use the system, this is what I need to achieve, it's quite a difficult gap to bridge. It's highly recommended. I mentioned IEC 61508 earlier. It's highly recommended for the more critical software. The, 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 that standard actually bans software into different uh, categories depending on how, how bad it is if, if it fails unsafely. And at the higher levels, then it's highly rec- formal methods are highly recommended. But generally, the difficulty of achieving those higher levels is such that the, the people actually procuring the systems tend to prefer architectural solutions to engineer the way. It's always preferred to engineer the way the disk rather than actually uh, trying to manage it down. Um, so... For instance, I mentioned communication systems. Uh, well, if an air traffic controller loses all communication with the aircraft, then they might just as well go down to the canteen and have a coffee because there's nothing else they can do. Um, so those systems are, um, you know, need to be very high um, availability. Um, but the way that's achieved is you actually have multiple diverse systems. So... Um, typically, there'll be a main and standby of the main system, uh, but then if both of those fail, because they're typically not diverse, uh, the, the controller will pick up what they term it the emergency handset. It is a totally separate handset going through totally separate, separate equipment, um, through a totally separate cabling or microwave links or whatever, out to the totally separate transmitters. Mm-hmm. And by really making sure that the systems are highly independent, you then reduce the availability you need for either uh, one of the systems. And so suddenly the, uh, the, the, the control system for the communications that actually um, selects the channels and uh, enables it and gives them uh, tail back in their ear, all that stuff becomes a lot less critical simply because the architecture is engineered in such a way that, you know, if it fails, the failure is evident and they can simply uh, go a different way. And I think that's one of the other reasons why formal methods have not had the the, the take-up that they, they might have had is that people try and avoid the sort of systems where they're needed 
they're certainly they're used. They're, they're used. I mean, I, I know people who are involved in informal methods. There's uh, um, the firm Thaxis in the UK, uh, which uh, does Spark Ada. That's a safe subset of Ada. Um, I've no involvement with them except my tutor when I was actually doing the uh, <laughs> my uh, masters <laughs> worked for them on, on on the formal methods module it was, was was with them and yes that there, there is a there is a place for formal methods they are used um, but um, there's a there's a preference for finding simpler ways of doing it that, that makes a lot of sense I mean uh, I like you describe. Uh, using formal methods to prove that a system behaves the way you want it generally suggests that maybe your your system is is too complex to be practical uh, and not 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 just be practical but the way to formally verify a system is to uh, describe the system in really complicated terms that you know business stakeholders or regulators certainly aren't familiar with interpreting and not only that, but once you've formally verified everything in this highly technical language, you need to rewrite it and implement it in the in the programming language. Let's say that the system actually needs to run in. So, when, and, yeah. and so, so, so in order to mathematically prove it, you need a mathematical specification of the programming language. You also need to uh, prove that the compiler correctly implements what you've coded. Um, and that the microprocessor correctly runs what the um, compiler has has put out, and so yes, there's a lot of chains. Uh, there's a lot of links in the chain uh, that if you're using formal methods fully, um, that yeah, it, it's a lot to do. Having said that, I have used it in i've used formal methods informally if that's not a contradiction in terms <laughs> no i don't think so but when that uh when i was actually involved in the specification of a system and i was having trouble coming to grips with exactly how a particular piece of logic had to work uh then i just sort of got out to pieces of that paper and i doodled it using the z formal method um simply so that i got a better understanding of of what was needed and so as as a as a technique it, yeah it, it's certainly available and um it whether it's complicated or not i suppose depends on whether you've got a particularly mathematical mindset um well, i i tend to be quite mathematical as engineers go i know sort of it's new it's it's a numerate discipline um but uh i i tend to like getting into the abstract <laughs> elements of the mathematics as well I, I, I liked your initial example of how you could do formal methods or you could just buy a second phone <laughs> and, and when your problem is redundancy just buy a second one you know um <laughs> different manufacturers on a different network yeah, yeah. Uh, we, uh, they, even there we'd have to make sure they weren't using the same masks but yes yeah as i say uh, if, if we always in terms of safety if you can actually uh, remove the remove whatever's causing the risk in the first place that that's the preferred one that's the preferred way to go um, I think maybe I can draw an analogy here in software engineering is that 
even if you don't use formal methods, there might be some value in the exercise of uh, considering the problem from another perspective, I guess. And one uh, advocated way that is not uh, religiously observed or imposed by outside regulator is the concept of test-driven development, where the idea yes the idea is that you write your tests first that verify the behavior of your software that you expect. And until you write your software, those tests will fail. So you can uh, use the tests as a guide for what to work on and uh, to verify that what you're building does what you set out to do in the first place. So, uh, 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 Absolutely. And the other thing I, I think that I would uh, take from it uh, is um, code contracts. Even if you don't actually implement code contracts, if you're not actually specifying your preconditions and postconditions of any uh, function, simply thinking about what must be true before I call this function and what do I then guarantee is true when the function exits. Um, that way of thinking, I, I, I certainly, you know, it, from my hobbyist perspective, I find it very valuable. And, you know, I was quite... Um, pleased to see that there was some some take up of it um, so for instance when when c sharp actually introduced code contracts uh, as an extension um, and i think that does actually feed into um, the um, test driven design and behavior driven design uh, because you are thinking uh, in terms of what can I feed into this? Certainly, if you're looking, if 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 you're making sure you're testing failure cases as well as success cases, what what happens if I call this in it with an invalid parameter? Um, what what does it do? What should it do? Um, then, yes, uh, in in a way that feeds into it because uh, thinking in terms of code contracts gives you. Uh, an insight into what your testing should be for you, what what tests you should be writing for it. Um, that uh, you know, if I call it with these parameters, it should throw this exception. If I call it with these parameters, then it, it I should guarantee this output. Well, yeah. I, we're we're running out of time. I I do want to suggest that if there's any aviation folks in the audience that. Uh, or, or aviation hobbyists that, that have additional questions for Tim. Uh, Tim is reachable on LinkedIn. He, if you also want to request an answer from him on Quora, uh, he, he might get a giggle and will probably respond to you, I'd hope, uh, if it's a good uh, question. If people do those things, then I'll actually be able to look up the documents and make sure my answers are correct rather than some of my <laughs> slightly hand-wavy answers, like, like characteristics of a programming language. I felt I was waving my hands because I would normally pull up the standard and read down the checklist. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's the yeah. drawback to, to live, live audio recording. But uh, we, we, I think we appreciate the, the risk you take in, <laughs> in coming on a show and answering questions on the fly. So, Tim, I want to say thanks for coming on. I had, I've had a lot of fun. Yeah, um, thanks for having me. It's been a good chat. Likewise. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.